So you want to see something in a book written by someone named John. It's John's story about Jesus. It's called a gospel. Good news about Jesus. It's like a biography. John wrote it. Not alone. It's very interesting. It was Jesus himself who helped John to write this book about Jesus. We've been going through it, and I'd like to call your attention tonight to John. We're still in chapter 3, but we'll, Lord willing, we'll finish it perhaps tonight. It, uh, verse 22 is where we'll pick up. Give you a chance to find it. John chapter 3, verse 22. Quite a, quite a passage, stock full with good stimulating stuff. Look what it says. After these things, well, that obligates you to slow down and ask the question, what things? If you recall, it's things like the uh, transformation of water to wine in Cana. We read about that in John chapter 2. That's one of the things that preceded what we're about to read. Uh, also, this is after the cleansing of the temple. It stood in Jerusalem. Remember the Lord went there and he was righteously indignant because consumerism had distracted people from the worship of Almighty God. It's after that event. It's after the Lord performing many attesting signs pointing to his messiahship. It was during a feast called Passover. What we're reading about is after all that. And it's after the Lord's rather lengthy interchange with an interesting person named Nicodemus. That's what it means. After all these things, Jesus and his disciples, a disciple is a learner. After this, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. So Israel is divided into three provinces. Judea is the one in the south. On top of Judea is Samaria, and then further north, on top of Samaria, is Galilee. That's how the country is laid out. This text said Jesus came into the land of Judea. Don't misunderstand. He had been in the city known as Jerusalem, which is in Judea. So when this says he came into the land of Judea, you have to trust me on this, it means he left the city, Jerusalem, and went out into the countryside. That's what he did. Why? Well, the text says there he was spending time with them. I, I like the expression spending time. When you spend a resource, you do it in order to procure something you think is of value. Uh, the Lord expended, spent time with his disciples. He thought that was a good investment and expected a return on it. He spent time with the multitudes. He met the needs of many. They were hungry, and he multiplied loaves and fishes to satisfy their physical hunger. But though he met the needs of many, he only trained a few. It's these, the disciples. And isn't it a good thing he made that investment in their lives? Because frankly, it wasn't the multitudes who perpetuated the good news about Jesus so that you and I could hear it down to this very day. It was 
the twelve. And so the Lord focused on spending time with these disciples. Whatever else he was doing, if you pay attention to the text, you'll always see the disciples nearby watching and being schooled. I suppose he thought it would be better to take these followers of his outside the hustle and bustle of the city known as Jerusalem, get out into a rural area where he could spend time with them. The Lord's mode of discipleship was relationship, to be together. In fact, you see the phrase, he was spending time with them. Your translation might say he remained with them. Same idea. In the original text, it really says, it really means to rub hard or to rub through. It's a wonderful picture. It means the Lord was rubbing shoulders with these disciples with a view towards impacting on them. That's essentially what's in view here. One of the Lord's top priorities as you read the stories of Jesus, you'll see, was the training of the 12. That's what he was doing. But he wasn't only spending time with his disciples. The text goes on to say, and baptizing. But you'll find out when we get, if we get, to John chapter 4 someday in the distant future, you'll find out that uh, uh, the Lord didn't actually do the baptizing. It was, he, he supervised it, but it was actually done by his disciples, which leads to the question, why did the Lord baptize none? Well, we'll get uh, to the answer when we get to John chapter 4, in particular, uh, verse 2. We'll get there eventually. But for now, notice, this is what the Lord was doing. And while baptizing was taken, taking place under the Lord's supervision, look, verse 23, John was also baptizing. So this tells us that the ministries of John and Jesus overlap for a few months, not for a long period of time, but while the Lord was baptizing in one place at the same time, John was baptizing in another place. And uh, John was baptizing, the text tells us, in a place called Anon near Salim. Uh, does anyone here know where that is? Okay, I'm Nobody does, and so I was kind of hoping maybe you knew something the rest of us don't know. We just don't know for sure where it is. There are suggested places, but we don't know. All we know is that it was somewhere alongside the River Jordan. Why? Well, because there was much water there. So John was baptizing in a place where there was much water. And I don't want to get us off track, but I will say you don't need uh, much water to uh, pour it on people, and you don't need much water to do sprinkling as the mode of baptism, but frankly, you need much water to do immersion. So I, I, this doesn't prove the point that immersion um, is the biblical mode of baptism, but it sure leads us to that conclusion. So when you see people, isn't it a glorious thing? We regularly have the privilege of seeing people baptized. They are totally immersed. Uh, we believe that is the biblical mode of, of baptism. And apparently John did as well. And it says people were coming and were being baptized. And then verse 24, 
for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Why does it say that? Well, this was a man of God, quite special. Um, the Lord entrusted much to him, and the man of God will soon be cast into prison. Why? Well, he spoke truth to government. That's what he did. There was a governmental leader named Herod Antipas. It's kind of tricky when you read in the Bible because there's a bunch of Herods, so you've got to figure out which one you're talking about. This one is Herod Antipas, and listen to what he did. He uh, moved in with the wife of his own brother. That's what he did. He began to have relations with the wife of his own brother. Uh, John had access to Herod Antipas and essentially said, don't do that. That is wrong in the eyes of God. Herod Antipas did not receive that well, and so he took John and threw him into a prison. Soon thereafter, and I won't go into the circumstances tonight. We'll get there perhaps someday. Soon thereafter, uh, John was murdered. He literally was beheaded. And so uh, that's why the text says he had not yet met his fate. For now, he's ministering at exactly the same time the Lord is. In fact, uh, he's baptizing at the same time the Lord is. Now, this being uh, the case... Verse 25 makes sense. Therefore, because both Jesus and John were baptizing at the same time, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification, which is another word for baptism. What discussion? I think the context leads us to conclude the discussion went this way. Uh, the Jew was probably saying the baptism of Rabbi Jesus is better and of more value than the baptism of Rabbi John. So they were having, it wasn't a mild discussion, they were having a debate over the greater merits of one's baptism as over against the other. And John's disciples didn't take well to this. And so this is what they did. Verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So in essence, they are saying, he, this Jesus, who you spoke so well of, look at how he's returning the favor. He's competing with you. And a ton of people are going out to be baptized by him rather than by you. Implication being, John, you've got to do something about this. And this is how John answers in verse 27. He said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. He's right, isn't he? Could I ask you a question? What do you have that you have not received? Think about it. What do you have that you have not received? Is there really any such thing called a self-made man or a self-made woman? Is that really true? Could that self-made man or woman even on their own take the next breath of air if it wasn't supplied by the giver of life? What, therefore, do we have 
that we earned. Even the capacity to earn is given by God, don't you see? What do we have that hasn't come as a gracious gift? John's point is nothing. Therefore, I refuse to enter into competition with, I refuse to compare myself to anyone else's ministry, especially not that of Jesus, the King of Kings. That's essentially what he's saying. And in verse 28, he says, Furthermore, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. Do you know that's not the first time he said that? If you recall, way back in chapter 1, he said the same thing. I'm not the Christ. Folks, this is not a bad thing for us to remind ourselves of. Uh, uh, I am not God. Isn't that a good thing? There is one God, and I ain't he. That's not a bad thing to remind yourself of on a daily, on a daily kind of a basis. And so that's essentially what John is saying. Now, here's what he says. This is interesting. Verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. We understand that. But the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom was a specially appointed person called in Hebrew the shashben. Shashben. And uh, roughly equivalent to best man, but not the same. In those days, ancient Jewish marriage custom required all kinds of lengthy preparation for the actual ceremony. And the bridegroom couldn't pull it off without help. So he selected a shashben, a friend of his, whose duty it was to be the go-between, between bridegroom and bride. His ultimate responsibility was to sort of bring, uh, make sure the bride was ultimately brought to the bridegroom. That was his job. His job was to do absolutely anything he was asked to do by the bridegroom. He surely was not the bridegroom. He was the friend of the bridegroom. John says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands in, hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. The shashben, the bride, uh, uh, the uh, friend of the bride, would make sure nobody got in the way of the bride having access to the bridegroom. Again, the shashben rejoiced in hearing the bridegroom's voice so that he could do what the bridegroom wanted him to do in order to facilitate the bond. The primary purpose of the shashben was to bring the bride to the bridegroom and then get out of the way. The bridegroom was on center stage, not the shashben. The shashben faded into the background once he fulfilled his responsibility of bringing bride to bridegroom. And John said, that's me. I'm the shashben of Jesus. The bride is not mine. He is the head of the church. Those who believe in, on him are his bride. My job, says John, is to bring the bride to the bridegroom. It's to share good news with them of the bridegroom's 
intent to love them and be in relationship with them and forgive them and take them as they are. And I tried to be the bridge, the liaison between bride and bridegroom. But I'm not to have access and control over the bride the way the bridegroom does. Once the bride is brought to the bridegroom, they consummate the relationship. I get out of the way. It's not about me, says John. It's about the bridegroom. That's what he, that's what he says. And therefore, he says, furthermore, in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, that's worth memorizing. He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. This must be the case with us. This is an imperative, not a suggestion. He must increase. I must decrease. This must be happening in our lives. This testimony of John must be our testimony. We must live this way. How? When we're so filled with pride and ego, but God will help. And you know how? Uh, by allowing us the experience of failure, the recognition of flaws, and the experience of pain. That's what helps us to decrease and Jesus increase. So God allows us to get a sense of our flaws, our failures, and even experience some of the pains of life because it enhances our dependence on him. And that's the safe place. You see, the lesser depends on the greater. How do we decrease? When a loving God allows us to experience our human frailty and failures, to become increasingly aware of our flaws, and to experience the throes of life which overwhelm us, we have no choice but to cling to him for blessing, and by definition, the lesser clings to the greater. So the process of decreasing so that the bridegroom Jesus increases in our lives, that's happening, folks, as we experience the throes of life. In case you're wondering, oh God, why is this happening to me? You just found out. Because what's happening to you caused you to call out to God. The lesser calls out to the greater. And the lesser may think he or she is not so less if everything is going well. Once calamity sets in, in the calamity, we cry out to God. And we find him to be trustworthy. We find him to be present, available, and a great help in time of need. If you and I were not aware of our failures and flaws and weren't experiencing the throes of life, let's just face it, we may think wrongly too much of ourselves, and we would not be able to accomplish this imperative. He must increase. I must decrease. I wish I could do this as a matter of the will. I wish I could just make the decision to, to decrease, to be minimized, so that Jesus would be maximized. But I don't. I'm too filled with pride and arrogant, and I like the applause of men. I'm not going to give that up. And so Almighty God lovingly looses my hold on those petty fleshly things. How? 
by emptying me of self through failure, through flaws, and through hardships and adversity, which causes me to let go of self so that I can cling to him and say, as Jacob said in Genesis 32, I will not let you go until you bless me. The lesser clings to the greater with tenacity that says, I will not let you go until you bless me because I cannot be blessed apart from you. Folks, he must increase. I must decrease. That's happening every day as a loving father allows us to go through the throes of life. Now, I want to tell you why John was so convinced that Jesus must increase. Actually, better yet, I will let you, I will let him, John, tell you in his own words. Look at verse 31. John will tell us why Jesus is supreme and must increase. He who comes from above, that's Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth, that's us's. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven, that's Jesus, is above all. There's only one who comes from above. That's Jesus. The rest of us come from earth. Therefore, Jesus is supreme. Therefore, Jesus must increase. Verse 32. What he, Jesus, has seen and heard of that, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. What Jesus knows and reveals about heavenly realities, he knows firsthand. What you and I know about heavenly realities, we have received secondhand. Only Jesus has firsthand experience of transcendent reality, heavenly truths. He has seen them and heard them firsthand. That's another reason why Jesus is supreme. That's another reason why John says, you see, he must increase. We must decrease. And notice John inserts in there at the end of verse 32, no one receives his testimony. Now, that's a little bit of Jewish exaggeration. You'll see in a second. You know what John is saying? This is striking to me that though Jesus has heavenly origins, that what he reveals to us is based on firsthand experience, still, generally, people don't listen to him. That's what he says. But, I like this next verse, verse 33, but he who has, re there are some, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. What does that mean? Well, uh, God the Father has made statements about his son. One, one, one time the Father said of the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Another time, we were there a couple weeks ago, the father said, uh, I, I, I love the world, and therefore, I sent my only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Those are statements, many others. Those are some statements that the father made of the son. Therefore, when someone accepts Jesus as the only begotten Son of God who came 
to bear our sins, that person is essentially affixing his seal to the truthfulness of God. That person is saying, I go on record. I believe what the Father said about the Son. The Father said the Son is Savior. I have accepted Jesus as Savior. Therefore, I have affixed my seal to the truthfulness of the Father. When I accept Jesus the Son, I am telling the world God is true. Now the converse is true. The one who rejects Jesus as Savior is essentially saying God is a liar. Can you see how serious that is? That's essentially what's in view. Now verse 34, Jesus is supreme furthermore for this reason. He, that's Jesus, whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speaks the words of God. Why? For he gives, God the Father gives the Spirit without measure. Thank God you and I have his Spirit, but it's measured. We have the Holy Spirit to a certain extent, but Jesus has the Holy Spirit of God in full measure because the Son of God <laughs> has without limitations the full measure of the Spirit of God. This is another reason John said that's why Jesus must increase above all others because only he has the Spirit of God without measure. The Father poured out without hesitation and limitation the full measure of the Holy Spirit upon his son Jesus. Why? Verse 35, because the Father loves the Son. You know, that's why Jesus must increase. The Father has a special love for the Son and therefore has given all things into his hand. The prior verse spoke about how the Father gave the Spirit. And now this verse is saying, not just the Spirit, the Father so loves the Son that he has given to him, he has entrusted to him all things. And amongst the things which the Father entrusted to Jesus the Savior is, think about this, complete authority over your destiny and mine. Jesus is supreme and must increase while we decrease because to no other did the Father entrust this measure of authority. The Father entrusted to the Son the ultimate disposition of our eternal destiny. Wow. And so it says in verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, that's the alternative, see, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Since all things have been put in Jesus' hands by the Father, eternal life is included. The Lord Jesus has authority to dispense eternal life or to withhold it. God, the Father, has given Christ, the Son, the power to grant eternal life to all who earn it, merit it, beg for it, to all who believe in him. And eternal life is the greatest gift that God gives. Notice, he who believes in the Son will one day come into possession of eternal life. It does not say that. 
That's not future, it's present. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Are you a Christian? You have eternal life. Now, you may be troubled by that because you may say, wait, 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 wait just a second. Eternal life, uh, isn't that a future thing? Everlasting life. No, no, well, you're too stuck on, on eternal life as a quantity thing. It's a quality thing. The minute someone gets right with God through Jesus, the Son of God, that one comes to have an entirely different quality of life. It's the kind of life the only eternal being can bequeath. Only God is eternal, had no beginning nor any end. Therefore, eternal life is the life of God. And the believer begins to experience it in some measure. Now, I understand, in full measure. When we go to be with him or he comes to get us, whichever comes first. But no, no, the experience of a, 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 of a more lofty form of life begins the minute someone accepts the eternal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, do you notice something in verse 36? See where it says, he who believes. Now, you would expect, by contrast, it would say, he who believes. But he who does not, it should say, believe. But it doesn't say that. It contrasts believes with does not obey. I had to think about that. Then it occurred to me. I think we're making this concept a little too much of an invitation. But it is not God inviting us to believe. It's God commanding us to believe. Such that when someone rejects God's offer of his own son as our sin substitute... That is the ultimate act of disobedience. And think about this. See, it's a command. The father is saying, you shall accept my son. You shall respond to him in light of what I've declared about him. You shall give him his due. You shall yield to him as your greater, as your savior, as your Lord. And when we disobey what God has said about him. Folks, when we reject Jesus, that is the one commandment that keeps our guilt over all the other commandments we have broken from being removed. If we obey this one commandment to accept Jesus the Son, we can be absolved of our guilt with regard to the violation of every other commandment we've committed. But... If we disobey this one commandment, even if you have a good track record with reference to all other commandments, it's not good enough. It all hinges on what are we doing with Jesus the Son. That's the big, that's the big. If we accept him, we have eternal life. But if we reject him, look what it says. The wrath of God abides. Abides. Present tense. Meaning ongoing action, meaning for as long as an unsaved sinner continues to be in a state of rejection with regard to the Son, for as long as he's that way, so too the wrath of God abides on him. I really would like to clean this up and just say accept Jesus and life will be a bowl of cherries and you'll get whatever you want, but that's just not true. I wish I could say, come to Jesus and be saved. But then you have to ask the question, saved from what? 
Well, I'll tell you from what. From the abiding wrath of God. How could this be if he's so loving? He's holy. It's a package deal. He's holy and so loving that though his righteous indignation due to violation of his commandments must be satisfied, he said, I'll accept the satisfaction of your sin debt through the death of my own son. The wrath of God abides on the one who remains. Listen to me. I don't want to uh, uh, un, uh, manipulate you into anything, but I think this is true. If you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you go from this place, get in an accident, have a heart attack, or get shot, isn't this good news? If that happens to you, and at the time you have still yet not accepted Jesus, you are in a state of experiencing the abiding wrath of God before you die, and then that continues on into eternity. Can you see how important it is to accept God's offer and to obey his commandment to choose Jesus as your sin substitute? You must accept Jesus as your savior from sin in order to avoid the abiding wrath of God. Let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross in my place. Have you accepted the Father's provision of his Son as your sin substitute on the cross in your place? Why not tonight? If the answer is no, I haven't, or I'm not certain, why not tonight? You do not know what the next few moments hold. You don't know if you, I don't know, if we'll make it home safely tonight. Do you mind me telling you with great assurance, and I hope you don't misinterpret it. It's not arrogance. It's just assurance. I believe what God said. If I die tonight, I will experience eternal life in a much deeper way, in a much fuller way, in a more experiential way than I am even now. If I die, to, see the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why the Bible says, oh, death, where is your sting? It's an enemy, death. It's an enemy. It hurts us. It's a harsh reality. Cemeteries, burials, funerals, grief. It hurts us. It's the enemy. But it's the last enemy, and Jesus has defeated it. And it doesn't have its sting for those of us who by faith have been connected to the death Burial and resurrection of Jesus. That's what happens when you accept Jesus Christ. I don't know how this works, but I just know it does. He communicates resurrection life to those of us who have been spiritually dead. And that begins eternal life. It's the life of God. Not that we're God. Don't misunderstand. 
It's the quality of life that only an eternal being can experience, and that's what he bequeaths to us. I tell you, we rise above the earthly. We begin to live in light of kingdom realities so that when we come into heaven, into eternity, it's not culture shock. <laughs> we are ready. We are ready for it. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Wonderful that you're here tonight, but you get no points with God for just showing up. Sorry, Charlie. It's all about what have you done with his son. If you accept Jesus, you affix your stamp on like a sealed document in which you say, the father told the truth. He's not a liar. I accept the son on the father's terms. And the minute you do that, you become a recipient of eternal life. Your sins are forgiven because Jesus paid it all. You don't have to add to the totality of what he has done. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. <laughs> you could seal your eternity. Why do we keep bringing this up here at Sagemont Church? Well, because we believe. <laughs> That Jesus has authority to decide on your destiny, and he's already told you how he's going to do it. It's not arbitrarily, and he's not playing favorites. He said, if you believe in me, that means to lean into. It means to trust him as Savior. It means to put confidence in him. He says, if you do that, that's all I require. I will forgive your sin. I'll cast him behind my back. I will adopt you into my family. I will begin to give you a quality of life now that could be called the abundant life. And if and when you die, if it's before I come to get you, <laughs> don't worry about it. You'll be ushered into my presence. And my firsthand experience of heavenly realities will be yours. It'll be heavenly. Lord Jesus, in your power and under your influence, would you kind of stir up the hearts and minds of those who even tonight maybe don't know you yet personally, know of you maybe, but not you personally. It's like you're knocking on the door of a person's heart. You're not pounding. It's not a clenched fist. It's a gentle and gentlemanly invitation. Open the door. Let me come in. Let me do for you what would otherwise not be done for you. Let me forgive you, cleanse you. Let me put my spirit, which I have, by the way, in full measure. Let me deposit him in your life so that he can change you and you could live differently. Let me be the way by which you can be right with my Father, by which you can have access to heaven. Say, come into my life, Lord Jesus, I have sinned. I have broken your commandments manifold times. You do not grade on a curve. This is serious. I have offended your holiness. And in your love, you put the penalty of my sin on the shoulders of your own son, I accept this. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me, for I have sinned. 
for I am a sinner. Make me to be a child of yours. Reconcile me to yourself. Help me from the inside out to be the person you want me to be. And one day, Lord Jesus, I look forward to seeing you, thanking you, praising you face to face. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.